From Goldman Sachs Research, this is Allison Nathan. Welcome to Top of Mind, a podcast that explores macroeconomic issues on the minds of our clients. At the end of this month, voters across Europe will head to the polls for the European parliamentary elections. Now, normally, these elections don't get a lot of attention. They happen once every five years without much fanfare, and after all is said and done, they've tended to end with a continuation of power and policies for the centrist governing coalition. But this year is shaping up to be different. Many see the election as a crucial moment in deciding the future of the European Union, and that's largely thanks to a rise in populist, nationalist, and broadly Eurosceptic forces, as well as the looming effects of Brexit. Will a populist wave sweep through the European Parliament and will the right finally unite? This is a big moment. It's the moment of European democracy. We have to enjoy it in a way. We have to sort of project ourselves as citizens and do the same thing that we basically do when a national election is called. We have a say, we have a preference and we discuss. Will the future of European democracy be one for the populace? Here's leader of the Eurosceptic Brexit party, Nigel Farage. I think given the disconnect that exists right now between the people and Parliament, I think unless that gap's closed, anything's possible. And here's Steve Bannon, former chief strategist to President Trump, who's taken his message to Europe and has been campaigning for far-right candidates. That's why of everything that's going on, even in Brexit and even with Trump, with all the resistance, yours is the most important experiment. Because here... You're trying to make it work with people putting aside sometimes foundational principles to try to make it work. Or will French President Emmanuel Macron's pro-Europe vision for the future of the continent win out? C'est aujourd'hui un vrai choix de société qui est en discussion. C'est même peut-être un choix de civilisation. Emmanuel Macron wants to rethink a couple of things in order to reinvent Europe. With top leadership positions in nearly every major European institution set to turn over after the vote, these questions and what their answers could mean for economies, markets, and the future of Europe are top of mind. I want to start with some perspective on the role of the European Parliament and how it's evolved over the years. What's interesting is that, unlike the U.S. Congress or U.K. House of Commons, for example, the European Parliament can actually propose legislation, but it has tremendous influence over the political body that can, and that's the European Commission. To better understand the nature of this relationship and how the election could affect it, I reached out to someone who navigated it firsthand, Jose Manuel Barroso. He served as president of the European Commission from 2004 to 2014, and now he's a chairman of Goldman Sachs International. So thanks very much, Jose Manuel, for joining us to share your views on the upcoming elections. I'd like to start off with some perspective. From your seat on the European Commission, how did you view the role of the European Parliament and the influence they had? First of all, I really think that the European Parliament has been gaining influence and that there's an increased relevant role in the European Union system. The reality is that the new treaty, the Treaty of Lisbon, gives the European Parliament competence in areas where before it did not have the same power, and they are using that. So how does this impact the European Union? I can say in many ways. First of all, we should not forget that the European Commission is accountable to the European Parliament. The European Parliament is the only institution that can bring down the European Commission by presenting a motion of no confidence. 
And in fact, there was already one commission some years ago, led by former Prime Minister Luxembourg, Jacques Fontaine, that resigned because they understood they were going to be brought down by that kind of motion. So this has a consequence that sometimes the European Commission, in my view, is relatively defensive as an administration. So the way the European Commission prepares its proposals, and as you know, in the European Union system, the European Commission has a so-called monopoly of initiatives for legislative proposals. They do it in a way that is already from the beginning very much considering what can be the response of the European Parliament. And of course, you've lived this, right? I mean, based on your own experience of being confirmed as president of the European Commission in 2004. Yeah, the reality is that the European Parliament has one of its most important moments of influence in the forming of a new commission, because we need the approval of the Parliament, not only for the president of the commission, and there is a secret vote for that, but also for the overall college, for all the commissioners. And in fact, the European Parliament, following in fact an example of the American Congress, now has established, even if they were not mentioned in the treaties, has established some kind of hearings with uh, the different commissioners before giving their agreement to the commissions. And that is the moment where the European Parliament puts a lot of pressure on the individual commissioners, asking that they commit at that moment to present some initiatives of to follow some kind of policy line. And not only the president of the commission as such presents the overall program that I have to do it twice in 2004 and 2009 when I was re-elected president of the European Commission, but afterwards in these individual hearings there is a pressure from the parliament on specific policies for specific commissioners. So that's typically one of the most important moments where the parliament tries to, to shape the agenda of the European Union. So while the European Parliament itself has no power to originate laws, it has substantial influence over the selection of commissioners who can. And what's more, the Parliament can block much of what the Commission proposes, clearly giving it a lot of power over the legislative process for European policies. But that's pretty much always been the case, so it really doesn't explain the hyper-focus on this round of parliamentary elections. And while it's gotten a lot of press, neither does the surge in populist candidates on the ballot. After all, Europe's had a long history of populist ups and downs, so there's still a question of what makes this time different enough to raise concerns about Europe's policy direction. For context here, I turn to Mark Leonard, who's the co-founder and director of the European Council on Foreign Relations. His take on why this election is different really boils down to two things, what we've seen in terms of voter mobilization and a new cooperation among populist parties. So thanks again for sharing your views at what feels like a potentially critical juncture for European politics. We're obviously heading up into the European Parliament elections at the end of this month. In the past, European elections really have largely gone unnoticed. Why are they so important this time around? Yeah, it's true. I mean, in the past, in spite of their name, European elections have largely been national. They tended to be very low turnout and low stakes affairs and have had almost no impact on the way that the EU was run because there was a condominium between the two main blocks, the centre-right and the centre-left block, which meant there was a sort of high level of continuity in terms of how the EU got run and the elections were never fought on European issues. And 
the turnout was as low as 13% in Slovakia in the last elections. I think what's different this time is all three of those things have changed somewhat. So firstly, it's not going to be simply national election this time. There is an attempt by Viktor Orban in Hungary, Matteo Salvini in Italy, and a group of other people helped by Steve Bannon to turn these elections into an attempt to reset the European Union and move away from a kind of open European project to one in favour of, sort of closed borders, restrictions on free trade and using kind of migration as the kind of key lever in that. And they hope that it will become a referendum on migration. And that leads to a kind of sense from them that they might not just be a low turnout election. They're trying to mobilise a lot of their voters. They're very inspired by the lessons of Brexit where the Leave campaign found three million voters who don't normally vote. They're trying to find ways of engaging them in this election. And thirdly, the stakes are a lot higher because traditionally the anti-Europeans have both not had enough support in the European Union to have much of an impact on decision-making processes, but they've also been very, very split and, you know, the left-wing populists would stay in their lane, the right-wing populists would stay in their lane, and a lot of people didn't even bother showing up in Brussels. And I think what's happening now is there is an attempt to create a sort of federation of right-wing anti-immigration, anti-Islam, nationalist parties, and left-wing anti-austerity parties, and to get them to work together in a more cohesive way both during the campaign, but then maybe afterwards as well. Leonard thinks that the far-right and far-left alliances could win enough seats to slow or block everything from trade deals to budget agreements. But he doesn't think they'll gain enough power to reset the broader pro-European agenda for European policy. On this, Goldman Sachs and Barroso agree. Here's Barroso. The two traditional biggest forces, the EPP, European People's Party, center-right, and the Socialists and Social Democrats, center-left, probably are going to lose their majority. Having said that, I don't think we are going to see a fundamental change in the majority in the European Parliament. So I think, let's call it pro-European majority, will remain in place. But I expect those forces that are more critical and in some cases are openly against the European Union to have better results than in the past. So the European Parliament politics will become even more complex or <laughs> complicated. But until now, the European Union has shown a remarkable resilience. Let me just give an example. We had already a party that was completely against European consensus that was elected to lead one of our countries. It was the Syriza party in Greece that was elected against the so-called Euro consensus and it was threatening to change completely the European or the Euro area, and in fact what happened was that uh, they have adapted. And today I think they are not so far away from, a, let's say, a mainstream party. So the European Union has, in fact, more than people sometimes are ready to acknowledge, a capacity to integrate and a capacity to adapt. What I found interesting was that both Barroso and Leonard seem to see something of a silver lining to the rise of populist challengers. Here's Barroso again. By the way, I don't see it. And what I'm going to say now may sound counterintuitive, namely coming from someone like me who is a supporter of European values and European project. 
But I think probably it's not necessarily bad, you know, that this happens because, in fact, from my experience in the European Union, what was the main problem was not so much the criticism we received from those who are against the European Union. The problem was the lack of ownership of the European Union from the pro-Europeans. So there was many of the, let's say, traditional forces, they take the European Union for granted. And I've always said that's a mistake. If they want to defend the European Union, they have to do something for it. So probably the fact that we are going to have now more, let's say, strongest opponents to the European Union can be, who knows, a wake-up call for the pro-European forces, the so-called establishment forces that very often, I think, were not ready to leave their zone of comfort. And here's Leonard. I think that Brussels bubble has been insulated from national politics in a way that is often not helpful for its own legitimacy. A lot of important decisions were made without being properly debated. So having to make the case for what you do is, I think, a very positive thing. And, you know, a lot of the things which Emmanuel Macron and other leaders have been trying to do have partly been inspired by the development of these new forces. So that all seems to suggest we could see a resurgence in pro-European voices on the back of this election cycle, even as populist forces gain ground. Which brings me to one more issue I want to discuss, and I realize it's the one that's been the 800-pound gorilla in the room the whole time, and that's how the elections, which the UK is now almost certain to take part in, could impact Brexit and vice versa. One of our senior European economists, Adrian Paul, sees potential for the UK's participation to increase the number of Eurosceptics in Parliament, which, as I mentioned before, can only complicate the EU governing process. But he doesn't see much of an impact on the Brexit outcome, where we still expect a resolution sometime this year. That said, what the elections mean for national politics in several European countries will be important to watch. Besides the UK, we at Goldman Sachs are especially watching election outcomes for Italy, where a strong showing for the far-right Lega party could increase concerns about the sustainability of its public debt. But while fiscal policies are in question, our strategists don't think a major shift in monetary policy is likely, even with the ECB leadership turnover that's set to take place after the elections. We'll see how everything shakes out in a couple of weeks. Until then, and maybe even after, depending on the results, Questions about the future direction of European governance and policy will remain top of mind. Thanks to Euronews for providing us with some of the news clips in this podcast. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, 
The receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.